We're going to continue with our gospel travelogue. That's what I call it. Our passage today that I just read is a really fine companion piece to the rich young ruler from last week. I hope that's in your memory a little bit. But there's three little verses that are sandwiched right between rich young ruler and our story today about James and John getting in trouble in some ways. And let me read, them, let me read it to you because they're really key. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Okay, going to Jerusalem, going to the cross, who's leading the pack? Jesus is. Again, he took the 12 aside, told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will uh, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Uh, Three days later, he will rise. That is our context. Okay, rich young ruler, those three verses, now this. It is the third time Jesus has told them about his passion, his resurrection. He's told them this. Will they get it? (laughs) And what will their takeaway be? Let's find out. So it begins with the sons of thunder. You heard that name for James and John? Jesus nicknamed them that for a reason, probably because they were colorful and fiery and pretty rough around the edges. We know that from... Uh, the stories about them in the gospel, this one is one of them that adds to that case. They sort of tended to make noise wherever they went, thus that name Sons of Thunder. Um, we can see that played out in this story. I don't know if you guys have ever done this. Who here has ever been like cornered in a conversation? Have you ever experienced that? You ever been cornered? Like, can be at a party, that conversation you want to get out of. Can I, how can I gracefully exit this? Maybe at work. Uh, it's rarely a positive experience. There is a sense of that with James and John coming at Jesus. They have a plan. I mean, they have an agenda, right? So they're kind of they're kind of cornering Jesus. But notice, where's their pal Peter? Right? Where's Peter? Normally, those three, they are thicker than thieves, right? They're the inner circle of sorts within the twelve. Well, we're going to see that blood is thicker than water here. So the brothers, they approach Jesus with an agenda and they do this on their own. The sons of thunder. And they throw out a very audacious question. Uh, pretty ridiculous, honestly. I hear this, and I'm like, no wonder this nickname. This makes Peter look pretty timid and shy. We want for you, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> okay? Jesus, give me a blank check. Now, before we pistol whip these boys, we've all come at God this way, right? We've all approached God like this sometimes. It's that kind of gumball theology, uh, Jesus, I pray and ask, and you answer me, you give me exactly what I want, right? It's very transactional. There's nothing relational. There's nothing covenantal about it, though. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Now, man, uh, uh, there's a lot of ways I could describe that. Probably I shouldn't publicly do that. But uh, (laughs) let's just say, like, the temerity of their request, it's just, it's kind of... It stops me every time. It's reminiscent of the prodigal son's demand of the father, right? Father, I want my share of the inheritance, uh, which you didn't get, obviously, until your father died. So it's not too far off to say. It's kind of like saying, I wish you were dead because I'd rather have the inheritance than you. The money means more to me than you do. It's a bit, it's that harsh. It's every bit as harsh as that. Now, amazingly, 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 Jesus entertains that request. I can't believe how kind he is and patient he is with them in this passage. It's unbelievable. 
he entertains it. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? It's an honest question. It's not, hey, what do you want? It's not the attitude. What do you want me to do for you? Okay. There are a very small handful of times in the Gospels where Jesus asks that question. In fact, he's going to ask it in the story of Bartimaeus after this. What do, what do you want? And it's always an invitation to show me what's in your heart. What, what do you want? What do you want? So Jesus gives us the chance to name our need. What is it? What do you want? Sometimes the answers are, are beautiful. I mean, Bartimaeus says, I want to see. <laughs> but there are other times where that question reveals a darker side. It reveals the human sin of it in our hearts. Humanly speaking, sometimes this question, uh, it's like giving someone enough rope to hang themselves with. <laughs> I don't think it's Jesus' intention here. I don't think he's trying to trick anyone. But he is allowing for that revealing of the heart to come up. And the Sons of Thunder, they do a pretty good job of doing just that. Exhibit A. Here's how they answer. What do you want? It's okay. Well, let us sit your right and your left when you come into glory. This is verse 37. The language imagery they use there, 100% royal. If you're sitting at right and left, that means that there's a king or queen in the middle on a throne. Okay. So, and those are the seats of honor. Uh, which one's one or two? They didn't, Jesus doesn't really let them answer at that point. I'm sure they would have, you know, gone, maybe it would have gotten pretty ugly had they gone, wait a minute, who needs to be the right though? But those are the seats of honor. Now, they're talking about glory. And I kind of, I wonder, why is that? Here's, I think here's a good guess. I believe glory is on their minds because they just saw Jesus in his glory back in the transfiguration, back in Mark 9. That was in very recent memory, okay? Incredibly powerful. Think about watching that, beholding that. Jesus also just shared with the disciples that the approach to Jerusalem had commenced. So maybe the assumption is that, okay, Jesus is about to come to power. He's about to come into power and ascend as the Messiah. Okay? And if glory is imminent, hey man, I want to be number one, number two. They want in. Let's hitch our wagon to that. Notice, ain't no room for Peter there. There's only a left and a right. There's not a third seat. No room. So Peter gets thrown under the bus. Blood is thicker than water. So we've got adventures in missing the point. Again, uh, after the transfiguration, remember the argument that ensued with the 12 about who's the greatest? Jesus taught them in that. That just happened. That was not that long ago. So they didn't evidently listen to Jesus really carefully about that servant leadership thing of being like a child and such. That conversation, it was not that long ago. All these are in recent memory. So apparently, as Jesus described his passion to them and the turn that they're making towards Jerusalem, they simply heard the parts they wanted to hear and they discarded the rest. We're good at that. All of us are good at that. Selective listening. Uh, how many marriage jokes revolve around selective listening? But it applies to all of us. Relationships, everything, selective listening. Sometimes we hear what we want to hear and we filter out the other stuff. We kind of minimize it. We capitalize on this and we minimize the other stuff. That's what happens. So the sons of thunder chose to focus on glory, the victory of Jesus. They chose to focus on that. Man, I want to hitch my wagon to that. Let us sit in your right hand when you come into glory. Still not getting it. Now, Let's step out of this. Let's put ourselves in Jesus' sandals for a minute. That request is absurd, okay? Is that fair to say? Fair, okay. Let's also consider how absurd the timing is. 
Think of the timing. Jesus more or less just said, guys, I'm going to face suffering and death and humiliation. We're going to Jerusalem. That's what's happening. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And what's their first response? Right after that, what they can get out of it. I mean, talk about selfish and talk about ambition. At this time, if I'm in Jesus' shoes, that cuts me to the quick. That hurts. But again, he is shockingly patient, shockingly kind with them. I'm amazed his righteous anger doesn't boil over here. I really am. It's astounding to me. He says, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> Understatement of the year. You don't know what you're asking. You don't know. Are you able, listen to that phrase, are you able to drink from the cup I drink? Are you able to be baptized with a baptism with which I'm baptized? That's a mouthful. Verse 38. You sure you can do that? Are you able to do that? Jesus is diverting their attention clearly away from glory Something that they seek. Guys, in your selective listening, here's what you missed. Are you able to drink from my cup? Cup in the Old Testament carries a real strong sense of destiny with it. It symbolizes, um, well, destiny, obviously, but your lot in life, your purpose in life. But it can go two very different directions. So let me take the first one. There's like the cup of blessing. Psalm 23, 5. Anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over right? That is the cup of blessing, right? Given by God. But there's a very opposite reading of that, and that is the cup of suffering or wrath. Isaiah 51, 17, you've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. That's actually the more common usage when you come across cup in the Old Testament. It's the way Jesus used it in Gethsemane, right? Let this cup pass from me, but not your will, not my will, but yours be done, Father. That's how Jesus is speaking of cup here, okay? With the sons of thunder. So when Jesus asks them, are you able to drink from this cup that I drink? He's putting this question to them. Are you able to suffer as I'm about to suffer? Can you do that? Can you do that? The road to glory, uh, the Jerusalem road, we're about to walk together. It, it begins in suffering. The glory part comes later. Are you, so that's the cup. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Uh, our baptism, Christian baptism, has strong roots in the Old Testament. Symbolizes purification, right? God washing away the wickedness. Uh, that was the purpose. The flood is a baptismal image. Cleansing us of our sins, right? Making us white as snow, all of those things. So to descend into the waters of baptism, you have to think this kind of baptism behind me. You have to think of being immersed to descend into the waters of baptism means a death to our old life and all that we hold on to. It's a funeral for the flesh. We descend to death. But it also symbolizes new life. The second essential movement in baptism is that we ascend. We come up out of the water. And it means and shows us that we've been raised to life with Jesus. So we die to the flesh. We die to our old life. We come to life in Jesus. But for our baptism to mean anything... Jesus must first rescue us from death itself. Can you drink from this cup, guys? And can you be baptized the way I am? And the answer, we're able. And like the rich young ruler, you kind of go, do you want to reconsider that answer? Do you want to rethink that? We're able. Do they know what they were saying yes to? No. Jesus already answered that for them. They don't know what the, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know. So Jesus responds, you will drink from my cup. 
and you will be baptized in my baptism. Verse 39. This is one of those places that we have to be, I want to be very careful in how we parse this out. Because Jesus is, is speaking out of two sides of his mouth. So there's a bit of a paradox here, but this is such a kernel uh, of this passage. In one sense, can they follow him into that? Can they drink from his cup? Can they be baptized the way Jesus is? No, absolutely not. No one is going to follow Jesus to Golgotha. Nobody can drink that cup. Nobody can have that baptism. No one can bear the judgment of the sins of the whole world, past, present, future. No. That Isaiah passage, the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, you're not able. We're not able. Sons of thunder, you're not able, but I, I am. Only Jesus can drink from the cup of wrath. Only Jesus can endure the floodwaters of judgment, that baptism and purification. Only him. The sons of thunder, they cannot do that. And neither can we. So Jesus shields us from the cup of wrath. And in that, all those purifying baptismal waters of judgment, he shields us from that. And that's the point, right? This cup of Jesus and this baptism of Jesus remind us that we were bought with a price, right? That which was most precious to God the Father, his beloved son, that was the price. That was what was most precious. Now, we do, here's the other side, speaking out of the other side of his mouth. So that's true. Can they do that? No. They can't drink that cup or take that baptism on. No. Now, do we get to partake, share in some of the sufferings of Christ, have the privilege of identifying with him in small ways? Yes, we do. There's a cost to following Jesus. The servant will be like the master, right? We don't. um, That's why Jesus is telling him, you are going to drink from this cup and you are going to be baptized as I've been. Does that make sense? So there's a bit of, it's a, it's a both and, but certainly the efficacy of the cross, they could not do. So I'm going to keep these really distinct. That is for Jesus only. We share in that work with him, but he's the one that completes it. We, we're, we're privileged to share in it, to taste of it. But fundamentally, because of his sacrifice, we drink from just a different cup, generally speaking. We drink from the cup of Jesus, the cup of blessing. His suffering becomes our joy, right? Our salvation. I mean, look at this table. Look at this cup, right? The cup of salvation because of what he did. So his death means our baptism is now into life. Dead to sin, down we go in the water, right? Raised to life, up we come. So we don't peril in the waters of death. We are brought up into the life of the waters of baptism. So, guys... It's kind of a, yeah, you're going to taste some of this, but you have no idea where I'm about to go and what I'm about to do for you. And I, <laughs> I don't know if by this, uh, I don't know that Jesus necessarily silences them as much, much as he renders that right-left question sort of uh, irrelevant at this point. That kind of this whole business of saying my right and my left, ah, it's not for me to grant. It's, it's for those to whom it's been prepared. Verse 40. So in a sense, he he doesn't really answer it or kind of sidelines it. And my guess is at this point, hopefully they got it to the point that, okay, that that was a bad question to ask (laughs) for many reasons. Um, Maybe Jesus means those seats are spoken for in the sense that God the Father uh, has determined that. But I suspect his point is maybe a simpler one. Look, guys, those sorts of things, you can't earn them. They're, They're given to you. Okay, that's the way it works. 
And let's not forget those who were actually on Jesus' right and left in Jerusalem when he ascended to the cross. Two criminals. Those were the right and the left. Guys, you don't know what you're asking for. Who died alongside them. So the sons of thunder clearly had no idea what they were requesting from Jesus. A little bit of a scene change. The cornering of Jesus, that section is kind of over. The ten catch wind of it, the other ten. And uh, they're torqued, predictably indignant at that request. Now, probably because uh, Sons of Thunder got to Jesus first. Dang it. It's kind of like who got, who, got to, who got the best seat in the house, whoever shows up first. Uh, they probably want the same thing they want. So uh, they're crying foul here. But I want you to hear the words that Jesus speaks are all 12 what comes. It's not just to the two. It's for all of them because they all have, are grasping at the same thing. He's so patient how he shepherds them. Yet again, back to let's get back to what matters, guys. Let's do this. The same themes from back in Mark 9. If you want to leave my church, guys, you're going to get low and you're going to get small. That's how it works. If anyone would be first, you've got to be last. You've got to be servant of all. 42 through 44. And it gives a contrast. It talks about here's how the world works. Here's how my kingdom works. So there's the world, which is really about power, right? The exercise of power. You guys, you know about the Gentiles. You know them. You know about their leaders, how they dominate them. I think the word is lorded over them. It's oppressive, right? It's an oppressive exercise of power. Might makes right. You conquer. You create fear, retribution. That's how it goes. That's the way of the world. My kingdom is different. Not so with you, is what he says. To lead, you have to be a slave. To lead, you have to be a servant. And again, this is back to Mark 9. He just talked about this. Who's the greatest? We're back to that part. He puts it this way in 43 through 44. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. So whether the disciples grasp this or not, Jesus is laying a the groundwork for biblical authority. How does that authority look like? It isn't like the power of the world. This is what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. And it comes from submission. Servants are submissive. It's what servants do. Fundamentally different than the world. Fundamentally different. Instead of seizing what you want, this is laying it down and submitting. I mean, Jesus' own authority comes from his submission to God the Father. So it's a tremendous contrast. Guys, this is how it's done. You got to lay it down. Final verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Such a big verse. So many echoes of our Old Testament uh, reading from Isaiah 53. This is one of those rare one verse summations of the gospel. It's really, really good. And it answers the question why did Jesus have to die? Why do you have to die? And if the one word answer is ransom. Ransom. So putting others before yourself, uh, being selfless, as fine and good, you can find those virtues in other religions as well. Okay? You can do that. But this is one of the places where the Christian faith differs from all the others, and it is this idea of ransom. It's one of the pictures we have of salvation in the New Testament. Uh, it's atonement, right? It's another word for it. And it means you, you buy back people from slavery uh, or from prison or, or from death. And you do that by, by paying a price. 
you pay a price for their life. I mean, what do you pay in the movies or books? What do you pay the kidnappers and the hijackers who have someone? A ransom, our word, okay? You purchase lives back. Think of Schindler's List. That's a ransom. Lives are paid for. And in this case, as you know, the price was to be the death of Jesus. That is the cost of redemption. That's what it took. Early church loved this metaphor. Oh, they resonated greatly with it. So ransom, ransom. I'm close here with a few thoughts and I think a question. You know, we can read about James and John. They go, what knuckleheads? I can't believe that. I mean, oh gosh. I mean, the timing, everything about this just, just reeks of pride and audacity and foolishness and everything. But the reality is it is very easy for, easy for us to desire the benefits of God, right? The blessings, the glory, all the upsides while foregoing or forgetting the sacrifices of discipleship, the way of the cross, right? Servanthood, uh, suffering. We run towards glory as much as we flee from suffering. We've all done it. We all will do it. And that's where this passage just speaks so clearly. It speaks so poignantly. So where do you desire the benefits of God but minus the sacrifice, Right? And let me put it more specifically. Where do you want the gifts of God more than God? Right? Where do we want the gifts of God more than God himself? Let me give you some examples. Um, maybe you say, man, I want my health more than God. I want to be healed or I just want to be whole or I want this. And frankly, uh, I'll do that at any cost. And God, I just want that answered. I want that more than I want you. Maybe you want stability more than you want God. Right? Maybe you want, this, this is you know, relevant, maybe you want a new job more than God. Maybe you want that. Maybe you want to be successful, worldly, more than I want God. Maybe you want to have a family more than you want God. I mean, the list is endless. These are just like the top of the head. We could all add to that list, could we not? Based off where each of us is at individually right now. So here's where I want, I just want to leave you with one question, and it's Jesus' question. If God were to ask you, what do you want from me? What do you want? What would your answer be? How would you answer that question? Uh, Would your answer to be, uh, you know, about what God could do for you? Or would you answer it, you know, Lord, I, I just want you. I just want you. So in just a moment, we're going to have prayers of the people. I want you to answer that question in your heart. Jesus is asking you, what do you want from me? What do you you want? Like at your heart, what do you want? What would your answer be? And allow God to speak that into your heart. What do you want from me?